I'm Dr. Gryffindor. And I'm the Incredible Sulk. Mm. And welcome to <laughs> Planet of the Meerkats. <laughs> Cue theme song. I forgot to show you, Dave, the nitpickers guide for next generation trekkers. <laughs> Unauthorized, unabridged, uncensored. Uh, six seasons of bloopers, flubs, technical screw ups, and pick a plot discrepancies for discriminating fans. Wow, they use the word pick a Yeah, I know. I don't think this is like a legit Star Trek publication, though, but it's still funny. That's awesome. I'll get it yeah. from you next time I'm up. I'll be up a lot more now that the coronavirus is. Gotten its ass kicked. Although we, yeah. I, I should say that we were at a, we stopped at a bookstore today, and there was this old guy yelling at the clerk because she kept asking him to put his mask on. He's like, <laughs> "Why, why would you make me put a mask on when government Governor Newsom says, Newsom said it's okay?" And she's like, "It's a private business, sir. We have a right to ask you to do whatever you want." And then he got mad, and he threw his gift card on the ground and walked out. It's like, oh, what a poor fellow. Whatever so happened angry. to freedom? I thought free. I thought like everyone should have the freedom to do what they want. So now, freedom's a paradox because really people only <laughs> want freedom for themselves to do whatever they want, and not what other people want. <sighs> <laughs> what, what did you during do during the great pandemic of uh, twenty twenty when six hundred thousand people died? Oh, I bitched and moaned about having to put a piece of cloth over my mouth. <laughs> you should just let <laughs> let everyone do like you know what. Wear a mask. Who cares? If, if you if you want to, doesn't bother me. Just do it. Well, and with the mask on, I can make kissy faces at people, and they won't know. <laughs> well, I can see your whole face right now, so don't make any damn kissy faces at me, buddy. We tried to record this episode earlier this week, and we had some major technical problems. So yes. we're doing it again. And uh, this this topic in particular has been kind of a pain in the ass. We just couldn't get it going. It has been. It was kind of a hard one, hard nut to crack. So what what are we talking about? So we're talking about the deep past and the deep future. We we've kind of looked at society um, and imagined what it might have been like in the deep past, and then we're moving on through into the deep future. So way far out, mm-hmm. and we kind of have developed a theme where we've looked at the way that society kind of looks at development and saw that everybody thinks about not everybody but the predominant view is that we think of things evolving in a straight line right you think of mm-hmm. the the evolution of man drawing where it goes like caveman and you know every bit it's a little bit more evolved than there's final man you know walking into an office cubicle or whatever when in reality there's a lot of dead ends there's a lot of uh, starts and stops and things don't go from point a to point b i think a good place to start would be to look at one of the most well-known myths the flood myth, versions of which are found in many disparate cultures, mm-hmm. and see if we can kind of learn anything from this that might inform uh, our conversation looking towards the deep future. Yeah, and you know, it really goes beyond the. the so there's the biblical account of the flood with Noah's Ark, and you know, anybody who's been to sub- Sunday school kind of is aware of that. And you know, in that version, Yahweh, God, he gets mad that people are wicked and decides to flood the entire earth and wipe everything out, and he tells Noah to build a giant boat and collect two of each animal. 
Noah floats around in the boat for 40 days and 40 nights, eventually landing on Mount Ararat. And then the floods recede and Noah recedes civilization. What a guy. Yeah. I mean, and you know, if Josh Hartnett can go without sex for 40 days and 40 nights, 40 nights, Noah can surely float in a boat, right? <laughs> you sent it. You sent me a clip of that movie recently and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit, that seems problematic. I know that was it wasn't made that, that long ago, but um, by today's standards. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I mean, it, when you look back at like movies from 20 years ago, very cringy, some of the humor yeah. and stuff. So, you know, one of the things that people have done is they will go back and use the genealogies in the Bible to date the creation of the earth. And, you know, using the biblical genealogies, they've essentially some people the very literal minded people have come up with a number of 5,000 years. So the earth's 5,000 years old. And you know, that doesn't, doesn't jibe with the, the geologic record and all sorts of other things that we know about the earth. But I just would like to point out that in the sort of fable like beginning of the Bible, you know, so when you had Noah's Ark and you had the tower of Babel, people were living a lot longer. So a generation wouldn't necessarily be 120 years. It might be, 900 years. Noah himself is listed in the Bible as living to be 950 years old. So, you know, if you have to allow up to a thousand years per generation, even using the genealogies, the earth starts to look a lot older. How did people live to be a thousand years old, Dave? I don't know. You know, I'd like to live to be a little bit older, like give me 150. (laughs) Maybe not a thousand. (laughs) But a thousand's a long time, man. (laughs) They were, they were, uh, they were on a keto diet. Keto diets, yeah. keto diets. I don't know how to pronounce that. But the the paleo diet. Yeah. <laughs> hey man, that's the key. Slam slam that uh, antelope meat. Did they have forever. fat diets back then? I don't know. Is that is, or is that a, a new thing? I don't know. No, back then they ate whatever the hell they could get because there was hardly any food. Exactly. <laughs> they, were, they were like, wait, wait, you get, to, you get to choose what you eat? What are you talking about? All we get is <laughs> corn and pigs because that's literally that all exists, all, all that exists here. So another flood myth, the Epic of Gilgamesh, and anybody who's been through like a, a biblical history class in college will remember their teacher sort of being like, see, this is, this is like just like the Noah myth. And it's another, it's, it's, a, it's an even older account. Um, and it's about a real king who ruled in Mesopotamia in 2700 BC or thereabouts. And it's an epic, epic poem. And it's about this dude named Gilgamesh. He was the king of Uruk. And the gods created a wild man named Enkidu to travel to Uruk and challenge Gilgamesh to a test of strength. But they became buddies. And they go on adventures. And eventually Enkidu is sentenced to death by the gods for killing the bull of heaven. Gilgamesh is pissed. And he gets really sad. And he goes to visit a guy named... I'm going to really attempt this here. Uh, Napshtim. Uh, that we'll was, just call that him, was pretty good. That was we'll, call good. Him, we'll call him Tim. Yeah, let's call him Tim. Who's <laughs> <laughs> been tasked to build an ark <laughs> to preserve life during a secret great flood that the gods are about to cause. So Gilgo and Tim get inside the weather, <laughs> get inside <laughs> the, the boat and weather the flood and eventually lands on Mount Nasir. And the flood story, it's, it's, it's much older but what, what's interesting is when the flood's over, they both use doves to see if there's nearby land. Mm-hmm. The seas are receding. What you're claiming or what you're implying is that these myths I claim nothing. This is what, yeah. <laughs> so, so theor- theoretically yeah. that these myths could have could have stemmed from a common myth. Yes. Yes. Um, and then you have Plato, who lived in fourth century BC, 
and he wrote of Timaeus of Locri, which is the, this is the second Tim we've come across here. <laughs> <laughs> so Plato Plato describes Socrates' ideal state, and then yes. the next day Plato drops a new joint, which is the Epic of Timaeus. Yeah. So Plato is just on like a total run. He's on fire right now. Yeah. And uh, I'm not going to go into it at length, but there was uh, supposedly a, a landmass west of the Strait of Gibraltar that was swallowed mm-hmm. up in a great flood, flood that was swallowed up in a great flood. And it happened, uh, according to him, 9,300 years before the time of Plato. So about 12,000 mm-hmm. years ago. And that is, that is where we, that is where most of the Atlantis myths come from. Mm, indeed. Now we get into the Hindu texts and I got to say, I love Hindu myths because they're all so wild and crazy with like different animals. And it's just mm-hmm. such a cu- cultural divergence from what we're used to in the West. Mm-hmm. Um, so in this, in the myth, there's an avatar of Vishnu, which is a fish. And he warns the first man, Manu, <laughs> that there's going to be a huge flood that will wipe out the earth. And he tells him to build a boat. And when the flood comes, the fish tows it to a mountaintop. And a few virtuous people survive and repopulate the earth. That's a big ass fish. Yeah. Towing a boat. And then uh, in the Chinese mythology, there's the flood of Gunyu. Now, this one's really convoluted, but uh, the flood allegedly lasted two generations. So I interpret that to mean like 40 years. That's a pretty long mm-hmm. flood. There seems to be an awareness that they were not the entire world. So it seems like they sort of recognized that it was a localized event and not, a, not a global event. Which kind of points to this maybe being a separate account, but maybe not. And the flood was punishment for widespread human sin. So there was an emperor, Yao, and he had four advisors known as the Four Mountains that told him of the coming flood and advised him to prepare and appoint a guy. And he appoints a guy named Gun to help the kingdom prepare for that. Gun builds magic dams and dikes. The flood comes anyways. There's widespread destruction. But the gun sent... Gun's son, the great you, ended up controlling the flood after two generations had passed. And then the there's the Incan creator god Kondhiki, who decided to wipe out a race of unruly giants in an overnight flood and mm-hmm. turn the giants into stone. Uh, in, other, in other myths, there was a tribe on the shores of Lake Titicaca. The god Viracocha uh, chose to drown everyone but spare two people, a man and a woman, by putting them in a wooden box. Um, but there's also other flood myths. So there's Native American, American tribe flood myths. There's ones in Korea, Thailand, Thailand, Indonesia, the Philippines, you know, really all over the world, um, which really l- lends credence to the fact that there may have been a massive cataclysm um, mm-hmm. that was shared by a lot of communities all over the earth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it brings to mind the question. So if there was no civilization to wipe out, why would this have been notable? Yeah, if like, a tree falls in the woods and no one's around to hear it. Yeah, if there are a bunch of cavemen out there, like nobody, you know, when we get like cave paintings or something about it. No, yeah. we get these like well-developed myths that get passed down. It, it seems like it seems like climate instability and and you know the end of the last ice age could somewhat account for this. So to me, it's like an allegory about the merciless unpredictability of nature. Yeah, and I feel like it's a good example of sort of one of those great stops, right? Mm-hmm. Where. You know, society may have been evolving along a certain track, and then there's this sort of interruption, and it seems mm-hmm. to have been affected things all over the globe, and then things sort of started over at that point. And mm-hmm. um, you know, what types of technologies were developed and then lost? There's there's actually 
a lot of amazing technologies that we <laughs> that were lost to the the sands of time, right? So think of the pyramids. And pyramids are found all over the world, but just looking at the pyramids of Giza, right? How are those constructed? It's still somewhat of a mystery. I mean, people have theories, but we don't we don't really know. Yeah. We've got, you know, Damascus steel, which was incredibly powerful material, and that method of making steel kind of went by the wayside. Yeah, and Roman roads are still present in all over Europe. And, you know, it's a good example, too, of how, you know, we we build our roads for the short-term strength. So we put mm-hmm. rebar in them, and they're great right now, and they're great to drive your car over at 80, 80 miles an hour. But in, in the long run, our roads are not going to survive. Yeah. <laughs> Re, rebar is going to rust away, and the concrete's going to crumble. And so it takes, you know, pretty regular maintenance to keep this going. The disposability of our culture mirrors the disposability of our our built environment as well. You know, I was reading today about the new Macs, and apparently, you know, they're they're incredibly thin. They look really sexy, right? And but the the RAM and the hard drive are non-upgradable. They're soldered into the motherboard, so it's mm-hmm. essentially unupgradable. Which one of the thing that things that makes a computer last? And you know, I know a lot of people that have used their Macs for like a decade is the fact that you're able to pop out parts and update mm-hmm. them with new parts. Mm-hmm. And it just really strikes me as kind of crazy that, you know, you have these computers, it's their flagship line, and you can't upgrade them at all. Just think about the amount of electronic waste that's going to come from that. I mean, the amount of electronic waste in general is just unbelievable, yeah. like that we generate, but it exacerbates the problem. I know the the reasons why Mac does this or Apple does this, but, you know, should they do it? <laughs> <laughs> just because you could doesn't mean you should. Well, and one of the themes I think we're, we build into our future predictions, you and I build into our future predictions, is that people are really resilient. So there's mm-hmm. extraordinary changes. There could be huge cataclysms and gigantic problems. But at the end of the day, humanity is pretty likely to survive, um, mm-hmm. you know, all but the, 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 the craziest, most total annihilation scenarios. So this is a really good transition to start talking about the deep future and some some hypotheses. You know, we we face <laughs> a ton of huge challenges as humanity, right? And we have the capacity to solve them. The question is, will we solve them? <laughs> it's not really if, it's just, you know, if we do. So we kind of broke this down into some tiers. We've got the near future, medium mm-hmm. future, and deep future. So We'll start at near future, which is just imagining the world 100 years from now. Yeah. So I this is essentially with it may be within our kids' lifetimes. Yeah, could be. You know, I think a good starting point is like the, the most immediate challenge right now, climate change. It's already mm-hmm. starting to impact our world in big ways. And so what's that going to look like in 100 years? It seems like we're it's unlikely that we'll be able to avoid the you know widespread change, widespread impact. Yeah, I mean, island nations are going to get swallowed by the sea. That's already happening. And it's going to create huge refugee crises, which we're already seeing all over the world. You know, people Mm -hmm. are being displaced. Um, Is food production and, you know, the livability of certain areas isn't, is is Mm -hmm. changing in such a way that they can't stay where they're at. You know, your prediction that the era of nation states is is going to come to an end. Mm Mm-hmm. I feel like these climate crises and refugee crises are, are going to precipitate that change. Yeah. Incidentally, there's a book by Neil Stevenson called Snow Crash. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of a cyberpunk and it takes place in the near future. 
And uh, there's all these, essentially the nation states have been extremely weakened at that point. And uh, different neighborhoods have corporate sponsorship. So you can mm -hmm. live in like <laughs> the, the Mitsubishi enclave of Berkeley or the, the Chevron enclave of Escondido or something. And in between these enclaves ruled by the, the corporations is sort of every man for himself. It's like the wild west, you know, there's gangs mm -hmm. and violence and all this stuff. And people are protected with their, in their enclave enclaves by their corporate sponsors, which when I read it a few years ago, I was like, oh, you know, that's far-fetched. But it's starting to seem more and more likely. I mean, um, you could see yourself living in the nation of Google, right? This reminds me of this place we're in with corporations and brands where, you know, public communications are are so progressive and, and supportive. Like, I saw the other day that um, Pinkerton detective agencies <laughs> had, like, a <laughs> change their, their Twitter icon to the flag, the rainbow flag for Pride Month. And it's like... They're still Pinkerton detective agencies. They're still Pinkerton, and they, you know, they're like one of the world's historically the foremost, biggest like union busters, right? I mean, mm -hmm. come on, you don't get to like <laughs> be part of progressive culture, but you know, it's just that it's like as brands public face becomes more and more huggable, but they're still, you know, soul sucking, money hoarding enterprises. But uh, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Should we avoid uh, becoming a nation state, a world of, of brand nation states? Rich countries or rich areas may build seawalls. They may build other walls to keep refugees out. You know, I think we're going to see a probably a more fortified world mm -hmm. in 100 years. And I think we'll have a high probability that we will have created the singularity. Mm-hmm. Um, which, for those who don't know, kind of refers to two different things. One of them is that computers evolve to a point where they have sentience and surpass us in intelligence. And when that happens, it could happen really fast. And then the other thing, the other aspect of it is that humans would sort of merge with, with technology to sort of speciate into a new group of beings that's not the same as being human. But one, one aspect is that we would lose, basically lose control of machinery. Mm -hmm. I think there's different ways it plays out. We could potentially have, you know, form a partnership or a truce with ultra smart computers, but um, we might may not be able to control them. So the implication for human societies is unpredictable. Will our worst fears come true? Will we be subjugated by these hyper intelligent sentient machines? You know, one of the things we've talked about is the stratification. So a caste system that evolves amongst machines and amongst people and maybe is sort of fluid between those two groups. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think it's, especially in Western society, we think of caste systems as being repugnant because mm -hmm. we like to think that people are able to sort of transcend whatever lot in life that they are. Mm -hmm. they are. They're given at birth and, you know, the caste system sort of, the reemergence of that would be counter to that value. They exist, whether we want them to or not. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, it, is, it is a way that society orders itself. <laughs> and unless unless you take pains to defeat that impulse, it kind of happens, and and it could happen with with machines, right? So you could mm -hmm. have dumb machines that humans can still control and carry out menial tasks, and you could have sentient machines that are that sort of evolve beyond us, you know. Well, and with with technology like deepfake, deepfake technology, um, machines, you know, that are in, inhabit the cyberspace could essentially start controlling. How we view the world they could mm -hmm. you know alter or edit um film footage um mm -hmm. and you know essentially 
change the perceptions of people in a way that they would have control. So do, do machines create their own societies? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, we think, I think that's, that's the way we think of a, a, a sentient group of life forms evolving. And mm -hmm. that's sort of the traditional way of thinking about that. But if, you know, you know, maybe machines do it in a different way that we haven't predicted and mm -hmm. we don't expect. Yeah, I mean, that's the way our science fiction sees it, right? But again, that's very sort of human-centered to think about mm -hmm. societies. Machines may do it in a, in a much more orderly way. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> so let's, let's talk about genetic advancements. So in 100 years, you know, you've noted that amateur gene editing might be a thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, with the advent of CRISPR, I think one of the things that is scariest about CRISPR, and I don't get me wrong, I think it's a great technology, but it will essentially democratize biological hacking um, mm -hmm. to the extent where people could be in their garage changing their biology or changing the biology of their onboard children in the same way that, you know, 30 years ago, people were building their own computers and mm -hmm. swapping out pieces to, to build sort of their own personalized piece of computing machinery. So we may, we may become cyborgs <laughs> and we're sort of hacking our technology and also hacking our bodies at mm -hmm. the same time. We could conquer aging, you know, the average uh -huh. human lifespan right now is, you know, still below a hundred years, but you know, at a certain point, especially for really wealthy humans, they mm -hmm. can afford it. The average human lifespan, lifespan might skyrocket. You might have people mm -hmm. that are living to be 150. And I've said this before, but think about the most despicable political figure that you can and imagine them living twice as long. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good. What if, just, what if like Mitch McConnell figures it out right now and you just get this old, decrepit, evil <laughs> Mitch living for another hundred years and he's like still in the Senate? What no! If he, <laughs> what if he figures out how to de-age and he becomes young, sexy Mitch? <laughs> Benjamin Button, Mitch McConnell mashup? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Are we going to find a cure for cancer? We'll be able, will we be able to cure common diseases? I, I think so. And I think one thing that's going to happen when we start getting older is we're going to discover all sorts of new things, new diseases yeah. that are happening with our bodies. You know, hardly anyone lives to be over 100 now. But when you have a billion people living to be over 100, all of a sudden there's going to be some new like super cancer or, you know, who knows, maybe we're we're built to gestate alien bugs. And when we turn 130, the bugs climb out of our belly buttons or something. We, we just haven't experienced it before because no one's been that old. <laughs> We become human cicadas. Yes. <laughs> I think I think one thing that's guaranteed to happen is inequality is going to get more extreme. I, yeah. I don't see. I mean, hey, maybe maybe we're in this new Gilded Age right now. And 15 years from now, there's political will to shift that tide. But um, given all the problems we just elucidated, I think that inequality gets more extreme. And when you talk about, you know, the nation state failing, it may get to where all of the rich people live in these hyper technological cities and mm -hmm. all the poor people live everywhere else <laughs> in a and climate poor people, All the like average people, you average know, people the, the middle yeah. class. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think we're going to see mutagenic weapons. So CRISPR designed uh, genetic diseases that people are able to spread. Um, you know, I've, I've heard people, I've heard it said that, oh, you know, you could create a genetic disease that, 
only targets one person mm-hmm. or a family of people or mm-hmm. one ethnic group of people. And so this mm-hmm. disease, everybody gets it and they may get, uh, you know, they may just get a sniffle. But then if you're part of this group that's been targeted, it locks into your DNA and, you know, you die horribly. And, you know, what's the, what's scariest about that is the same thing that's scary about like a neutron bomb, right? Mm-hmm. Um, people say, oh, well, that's that's more humane. It, it, it doesn't have the collateral impact. It doesn't destroy, physically destroy our society. But really, you're still talking about huge losses of life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a type of weapon that could just be hugely disruptive. Dude, that is really depressing. (laughs) (laughs) But space tourism. Space tourism. Yeah. At what point were you going to get bored of space again? (laughs) Elon is going to have like a super posh hotel on Mars. And you'll only be able to visit it if you you pay six trillion yen. And if you're sexy (laughs) enough. And before that happens, Elon's going to kill a couple dozen people on Mars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Jeff Jeff Bezos is going to build his moon base. I mean, no one even talks about Jeff Bezos's like space shit. He, like, he is it just that it's like super his boring? Wife is like one of the most rich people on the planet, and she's doing all this amazing inherited. philanthropy. Yeah. So, <laughs> medium future, a thousand years from now. Okay. Um, will our societies collapse? I think so. I think we're going to see multiple collapses in the next thousand years. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the global flood. Uh, the flood myths will rear their head again. It, it well, won't yeah. be a myth. <laughs> I don't know if people understand. Like they think about, oh, the icebergs melted. Does you know it's an, a net an, a net gain for the ocean because they're already in the ocean. But the amount of ice that exists on land masses is huge. And mm-hmm. what would happen if like all of that ice in Antarctica melted? Like the world would look very different. Elon, and- get us off the planet now, baby. <laughs> There, there was a, a book called The Canticle for Leibowitz by Walter M. Miller Jr. And in that book, it takes place way in the future. And mm-hmm. there's this religious Catholic order that has was was their founder was this engineer that used to live. And it's about the, at least the first part of the story is about this guy who finds a hidden workshop and it used to belong to this their founder, Leibowitz. And he manages to, to uncover it's like a it's a technical drawing of like a carburetor or something, mm-hmm. something like totally innocuous, but it, because it was drawn by Leibowitz, the founder of their order, it has all this special meaning. They don't understand it. And they, he ends up taking it to the Vatican. Um, it's like this holy relic. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so artificial human speciation. Yeah. So, you know, th- with things like technology becoming embedded, and you know genetic editing and as people get spread out and separate themselves from their larger society you know Mm -hmm. over spans of like thousands of years that's going to start to change change the way that they are Mm -hmm. and eventually they're no longer going to be able to have children with the the rest of humanity and you know that leads to natural human speciation if we exist on multiple planets um, this is going to start to emerge when you get to like the thousand year scale you know, you have people on Mars that maybe don't have contact with people on Earth. And, you know, in the next thousand years, you know, maybe we, we start to colonize the galaxy, mm-hmm. in which case there's huge different distances between different groups of humans. One thing to note there is we, we talked previously about issues with fertility, 
you know, it, are are humans on Earth going to eventually lose the ability to procreate naturally? Yeah, and I'm a firm believer that there is intelligent life out in the galaxy. I think it's too big out in the universe. Mm-hmm. I think it's too big. So, you know, what direction is that going to take? Will it be like in the third three body problem where all all of the all the alien societies immediately try and destroy each other because they know that there's a finite amount of resources mm-hmm. or like in the Hail Mary project, spoiler warning where he uncovers aliens and sort of, despite the fact that they're very different are able to unite over the common cause of problem solving and, um, you know, sort of get along really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what impact will alien contact have on people? You know, mm-hmm. we love to form religions. Just imagine the religions that are going to form around, you know, Xanthar or whatever, who comes down in Iowa and starts preaching the gospel of feed. I love when people like at the beginning of COVID, when people were predicting this, this would bring us all together. It's like, have you met humans before? <laughs> like even aliens, they're, they're, it's not going to bring us together, man. <laughs> well, and I think, you know, in the next hundred to a thousand years, we're going to see a global, a global government emerge, mm-hmm. um, which only makes sense when you are dealing with extraterrestrial civilizations but mm-hmm. that is regarded by many christian sects as a sign of the apocalypse so maybe uh we'll get our, our global society run by a global government and either there will be an apocalypse or people will force an apocalypse because they really want it to be true which sounds silly until you look at the way that sort of people who believe in the religious apocalypse is trying to engineer things to happen faster what about dimensional exploration are we going to find a way to potentially hop across dimensions that are that are close to us within the sort of like you know bigger dimensional pie that's out there i think so i mean i think all you know there's a theory out there that that we've talked about before that these ufos that we see are not intergalactic sort of space aliens but rather mm-hmm. beings that are visiting us from another dimension and i mm-hmm. think that actually is a lot more plausible than than an alien has has come here that far. Doesn't mm-hmm. bother to make contact and just observes. I, I'm a big fan of the idea of hopping dimensions, especially if they're parallel realities where you get to meet other versions of yourself that are, I don't know, the better versions. <laughs> Hopefully not <laughs> the worst versions. I don't want to meet other versions of myself though. I think that would just be depressing. <laughs> like I, I I have enough of me with me. I don't need more. Of Emily had never seen um, Scott Pilgrim. So oh, wow. like a month or so, we started watching it and then never finished it. And we finally finished it last night. And uh, every time I watch that, I, I my favorite part is when he meets a uh, Nega Scott. Yeah. And, <laughs> and they just they just like hang out and shoot the shit and, and plan brunch. That's my favorite. part. Yeah. It's like <laughs> that's what I imagine meeting like another dimension. Me is going to be like, just be like, oh, hey, man. Oh, what's up? Be like the evil version of you, but you're just like you're still really chill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As far as speciation goes, I have one other thing to uh, one other point to make. So relativity could really. Fuck with us. Mm-hmm. So you know, there's a book called Forever War by Joe Haldeman, and it's a sort of broader allegory for Vietnam War. But in the book, you know, they send these people out to fight, and because of relativity they're gone for like a thousand years when to them, they were just gone for like five or six years, Mm -hmm. but then they come back to earth and they've seen all this fighting and stuff and society's completely changed. So there was another book I read called twin paradox where the, they, the government creates a giant particle accelerator where everything 
inside of the particle accelerator goes through time much more quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, in three minutes time outside, when you're running the particle accelerator, 10 years elapses inside. So mm-hmm. if you run this thing for eight months, it's like millions of years. Wow. So they've created this new ecosystem of things that have evolved independently of everything else on Earth. And on top of that, the sun is always out for this time that it's on. <laughs> and, oh, so, <laughs> and so and uh, so you have these like hyper uh, hyper intelligent, uh, really dangerous animals that have evolved to always live in sunlight. So they're super bright colored. And, you know, if you go in there, they can kill you in 800 different ways. That sounds really interesting. I want to read that book. <laughs> yeah, it was good. I, I recommend That's it. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, the sequel comes out in the fall, which is, the, oh, nice. it's only a two book series. So panspermia is the, is the idea that maybe different races of, of aliens across the universe were, were seeded by a common ancestor. Yeah. So that could be as simple as bacteria that hitchhikes on meteorites mm-hmm. and then lands, lands on different planets and starts life off, or it could be something purposeful. Um, you know, in Star Trek, they go into this and there's some, there's a race of beings called the Iconians that seeded uh, humanoid life around the galaxy, which is why mm-hmm. all the aliens in Starbucks, the Starbucks, Star Trek Starbucks. Look, the <laughs> <laughs> look the same. Um, and then you have Stargate where there's a race of creatures that um, seeds the galaxy with humans everywhere for the purpose of enslaving them. Um, but what if we're the ones that seed life? You know, there's a yeah. scientific bias against thinking that we're ex- exceptional and for good reason. But it's possible. What if we were the first to evolve? And what if we're the mm-hmm. ones that seed the galaxy? And, you know, a long time from now, our ancestors are the ones that are everywhere. It's possible. I, I, <laughs> I think that it, I think that it's bacteria. I think that there's bacteria that have lived for eons that have hitched a ride on the galactic winds blown across the whole universe i don't know (laughs) so let's hop over to the deep future dave and let's look at ten thousand years ten thousand years i think we're gonna have people that live really long lives Mm -hmm. and you know at that point i think society is going to definitely span across the galaxy Mm -hmm. but there is a, a series of books called foundation by isaac asimov it's currently being adapted by apple into a series but it's about this dude, Harry Seldon, who discovered th- there's a galactic civilization and he invites, invents this new version, this new way of thinking called psychohistory. And it's sort of a mix of like psychology and mathematics and group theory and uh, social sciences. Mm-hmm. He's able to, because things are happening on such a large scale and there's just trillions and trillions of people out there, he's able to predict the way society will turn pretty accurately. Mm-hmm. And he predicts that. The global, the global civilization is about to fall, and there's two mm-hmm. options. One is if they do nothing, it'll take you know 30,000 years for it to reemerge. Or if they do something, they can get it to reemerge in 1,000 years. And just thinking on those time spans is kind of crazy. And imagine trying to convince you know, a political leader, oh, by the way, yeah, your government's going to fall for 1,000 years. Do what I say, and it will only be 1,000 years. <laughs> we're, we're so conditioned to think within our tiny little lifespan it's hard to fathom even a hundred years, you know, yeah. in the time spans we're, we're talking about, it feels like a personal insult. <laughs> like I won't be there either way. <laughs> well, and then there's uh, Dune by Frank Herbert mm-hmm. being made into a, <laughs> a movie starring. Go for Timothee. it, Neil. Timothee Chalamet. <laughs> 
but that's based on a series of books and the the in the it takes place like it's some huge amount in the future it's like ten thousand mm-hmm. years um and you know in in the books one of the characters ends up merging his consciousness with a sandworm and they create this sort of biologically weird creature where he's half worm mm-hmm. um and people are able to do galactic travel basically using hallucinogenic drugs and it's it's kind of it's some crazy stuff pharmaceuticals is inter- we haven't touched on that yet but um you know i i think further exploration into psychedelic substances is going to have huge ramifications for people God, especially if it's used in a therapeutic setting yeah no no well i mean i've never done like lsd but i've read enough from enough like people that sort of have had grand visions mm-hmm. to understand that, you know, there's definitely a perception from people who have done LSD that it expands your thinking in such a way that it, it sort of alters the way that you see the world uh, mm-hmm. permanently. And mm-hmm. I just think that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. There's the potential of it use, use, being used for good or bad, right? Mm-hmm. I feel like early LSD experiments, the government wanted to know if it could be a weapon, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's one of the reasons why it was studied initially before it was banned. Yeah. So a hundred thousand years. So I have to start thinking in terms of cycles. Our civilizations may have collapsed and grown and collapsed and grown again at that point. And, uh, you know, this is the beginning of the timeframes that they think about for nuclear waste containment. So how do you communicate to a civilization of the future who might not share any any of your language or ways of thinking that what is inside this cave is bad and you should leave it alone. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> we love a mystery, right? And if we were to find, find something like that from some civilization way back in the past, we wouldn't leave it alone. We would go in and see what was going on. Yep. Um, <laughs> Did you ever watch dark? I know I've talked about this series before. I have not. And I want to, but mass effect got in the way they re-released uh, a remastered version of the Mass Effect trilogy, and I've been nice. playing my way through that, which is amazing. Is but that kind of falls into the. Game? It's a yeah, it's like like a console game. Nice. Um, and that kind of goes into the hundred thousand year timeline too, because in that game, there's a there's a race of artificial beings that live outside the galaxy and wait for societies and races to develop to a certain point, and then once they do, they come in and they kill everybody. Mm-hmm. It has evolved to best a certain point and sort of reset the clock. Mm-hmm. Um, and the plot of that game is you're trying to keep that from happening because it's mm-hmm. going to erase humanity and all the other sentient species. And, you know, it's just sort of an interesting idea of thinking in terms of 50,000 years. That's that's such a long time. But in the terms of the universe, it's not long at all. So the the idea that we're, we're being allowed to exist because we're not advanced. So there's a higher power that yeah somewhat managing the uh the contours of what we're allowed to be interesting exactly and they leave behind technology that once people find it they're like oh this is great and it completely alters society everyone becomes dependent on it and then it's our dependence on that technology that makes it real easy for them to come in and just sort of blast everybody Mm -hmm. we're just being played like puppets we are (laughs) and of course in the game you save the day with like a gun (laughs) because <laughs> they got to make it at a scale that you can play at yeah exactly a scale we can understand yeah 
So one million years, the farthest we're going to look in this exercise. And we're looking at a, a world of disparate, unconnected post-humans reconnecting and discovering our shared past. Or maybe we'll be fighting. Earth might be a myth at that point. Can we transcend human nature at any point? Um, or are we are we destined to be our own worst enemies? What, I was actually giving this question some thought, and I don't know if we can transcend human nature. But one thing I wonder is what we regard as human nature, is that actually the nature of being intelligent, mm-hmm. being like sentient beings? And is it not necessarily human nature, but is it the nature of sentient beings? So if we were to encounter aliens, would they have a completely different mindset? Or because they possess a similar type of intelligence, have the same sorts of problems and and way they go about doing things. Well, we talk a lot about like limited resources, right? And a lot of the sort of like competition for resources drives this, what we think of as some of the bad parts about human nature, right? We're prone to fighting, you know, prone to violence, uh, prone to hoarding of resources. You would think if the galaxy and the universe also has you know, some level of like limited <laughs> resources that the the same issues would plague other societies, you know? Yeah. It, Although it, there are examples of human societies where there there is successful sharing of resources. So yeah. that runs counter to our assumptions. I do want to ask yeah. you, because a theme that we've had running through this season is, is the idea of optimism, optimism mm-hmm. in our future. Yeah. And I I was thinking about this and and just trying to answer this question for myself. And I guess that I am optimistic that the human race will live on no matter what. And mm-hmm. I, I I do see that like clearly that we are going to probably be exist in different places, different planets and yeah. probably evolve in different ways. And I'm optimistic that humans will survive and we will solve some of the big problems that plague us, but I, I just want to caveat that by saying that I, I do think there are a lot of non-ideal outcomes that are baked into <laughs> yeah. both the near future and the deep future. So it's a tempered optimism. <laughs> yes. Well, and you know, I think one of the things like that the U S you know, we thinking myopically. So thinking about just our microcosm of society, the United States, mm-hmm. one of the things the United States has really lacked for the last 80 or so years is an existential threat, mm-hmm. right? And there's climate change, but so many people don't accept that as an existential threat. I don't think it really counts and it hasn't mm-hmm. really kicked into gear yet, but there's been nothing to bring us together. And mm-hmm. um, I sort of get, I get, although I disagree with, I get the thinking that, you know, you need some sort of external threat. Um, I remember in, the Watchmen comic book at the end, Dr. Manhattan brings everybody together by creating a giant squid monster that attacks New York city. And mm-hmm. it's sort of like, Oh, you know, if we were to discover aliens and they were a threat, would that be enough to bring us together? And yeah, I, I mean, I, I, a lot of people take that and they're like, Oh, we have to create a threat. And it's like, no, no, that, that's not really it either. But uh, you know, I think at the end of the day, going to war and having having a, a common purpose to fight against is the only thing that can bring large societies together. We've thought about this theme, you know, maybe informing future episodes. We've talked about this both in terms of China and aliens, right? There's this speculation that the Pentagon 
sort of finally deciding to acknowledge the existence of UFOs or whatever acronym they're using now. You know, there, I think, I think there's an idea that it's like, Oh, maybe, maybe there's truth to it. Uh, or maybe there's, there's a sort of like political purpose to it or a mm -hmm. security purpose to it. Right. Um, maybe the Pentagon wants to control a narrative and, and, you know, as it relates to China, a month or so ago, when Liz Cheney got kicked out of her leadership position in the House, she gave a speech and was basically advocating for a new Cold War with China as a way to unify <laughs> us. So I think what you're saying is totally valid and, and is true. You know, external threats make us see our commonalities and, and give us a reason to unify. Without, the, without it, you've seen what happens. I think we split, we splinter into a lot of factions. Yeah, Chris Hedges wrote a book called War is a Force that Gives Us Meaning. And in the book, his sort of central thesis is not that war is good, because he makes it very clear that he does not think war is good. Mm -hmm. But it's the type of thing that um, brings people together in a way that nothing else can. Mm -hmm. So in some way, maybe we're, we're hoping for a, a race of violent aliens that are trying to control us, right? Maybe or, at least ones that, or at least the ones that act violent. Right. Yeah. <laughs> bring out, bring out the best in us. I don't know. <laughs> to me, the, the biggest, the biggest uh, sort of cultural touchstone for sort of deep past and deep future. And just thinking about the scale of that is, is 2001. Um, yeah. The sort of monolith, the mystery of the monolith that's placed on earth. that sort and of spurs these, these apes to evolve into man. And then, and then we find out later that the monolith exists, what on the moon and, you know, next to Saturn or whatever. So kind of ties together the past and the future. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's right. Right. Is there a benevolent race of beings that wants us to evolve once we get to a certain point? Mm -hmm. You know, is that any different from, from God? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Wow. I think that's a good note to, uh, to end <laughs> on because that's very poignant. All right, Dave, it's a good conversation. What are we going to talk about next week? Uh, we're going to do a short on kid shows. We are both fathers of young, young kids and kid shows we love or kid shows we hate kid shows that we, we, we hate. Although <laughs> I, I am going to talk a little bit about ones that I appreciate, uh, <laughs> but there's a lot to hate in kids. Program. I mean, you, you've been a dad much longer than me. I feel like you have, you have a, a more, uh, uh, sort of historical <laughs> view of kids shows for the past 10, 10, 15 years. <laughs> but um, I definitely want to talk about the this YouTube show that I haven't seen yet. It's not even a show. It's just like a, a clip. Uh, I haven't seen it yet, but the way that my daughter describes it, it's worms. There's like a worm teacher and worm students, and the worm teacher is teaching the students about the crucifixion of Jesus. So <laughs> I'm going to try, <laughs> try to bone up on that one before we talk next week. Wow, just imagining what a... Is Jesus a worm in this scenario? I don't know, Dave. I'll have to let okay. you know next week. <laughs> it would seem kind of complicated to to crucify a worm on like a cross because they're straight line. They have no, they have have no like arms. Wrap it around. <laughs> but if you if you nail a worm to a cross and it, it like cuts it in half, it'll grow into two worms. Whoa! You could have two messiahs. Damn, this is going deep. <laughs> So before we log up, I just want to wish uh, your lovely wife a happy birthday. It is Brahma's birthday today. Yes, it is. I'll pass that on. Um, 
And uh, oh, we we just for for people out there, I I bought a cameo for her, which is a service you can go log in and um, pay money for a celebrity to record a video message for somebody. So I did a cameo of John Delancey from Star Trek, and it was fantastic. <laughs> so highly recommended. Thank you, John Delancey, if you listen to this podcast. Remind us who which character John Delancey plays. He played Q, which oh, is a character that yeah. spanned many of the Star Trek shows. Uh, he was on The Next Generation and Voyager. He was on one episode of Deep Space Nine. And he's due to return um, in uh, the next season of Picard, which looks like it's going to be very Q-centric. I think he, he was even in an episode of Lower Decks. Q is one of the best. Yeah. All right, my friend. I'm Dr. Griff Indoor. And I am the Incredible Sulk. And thank you for joining us on Planet of the Beer Cats. Planet of the Meerkats is produced by Neil Fries and David Garrison, and our theme music is by Tawny Frogmouth.